Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent, recording this episode in October 2023. This episode is about philosophy of mind and, in particular, functionalism. So we'll be thinking about what functionalism is, uh, various examples that illustrate the idea, and pros and cons of functionalism. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Uh, joining me in this episode, we have Sally Latham, who's a philosophy teacher at Birmingham Metropolitan College. Hi, Sally. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me back. Uh, and we've got Mabel Rowe, who teaches philosophy and religious studies at Barton Court Grammar School in Canterbury. Hi, Mabel. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me back as well. And Adrian Samuel, who teaches philosophy at Cheltenham College. Hi, Adrian. Hi, good to be here. Uh, good to have all three of you with us. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about a significant set of issues within philosophy of mind, uh, namely functionalism. So philosophy of mind and functionalism appear on the AQA A-level philosophy specification, which we're going to be basing our discussion around. But if you're thinking about studying philosophy at university, no matter what you're doing at A-level or IB or Scottish hires, it's worth listening to. This is one of a series of Philosophy of Mind podcasts I'm running, so please check the others out too. Okay, so let's start with some basics. We're going to define functionalism in a minute, but Sally, do you want to uh, just explain what we're doing in Philosophy of Mind first of all, and then we'll go on to functionalism? Sure. Okay, so um, Philosophy of Mind, in the specification, it's actually um, named the metaphysics of mind. Um, and the metaphysics of anything goes over and above trying to kind of go deeper into um, a particular topic. So whereas psychology might be concerned with how the mind works, philosophy is really asking the question what the mind actually is. So what is a mental state? What is consciousness? What is my pain, my hope, my fear? And there's a number of different ways to approach that so that your obviously your dualist theories would say that the, the mind, mental states, consciousness are something that cannot be reduced to the physical, either because it's a distinct substance or because it's a distinct property. Um, we then have a move into physicalism, which will say that everything that exists, whether it's a, a, a substance or a property, um, is always going to be something physical and nothing more. number of theories there, whether that's behaviourism, where we um, analyse mental states in terms of behaviour, identity theory, where we analyse, well, mental states are reduced to brain states, and eliminativism, where mental states are just eliminated altogether, at least some of them are. And then you have functionalism, which has its own little tiny section at the end of the, of the specification. And the reason for that is because it doesn't, well, it's compatible with either. And it takes a completely different um, viewpoint on how we approach mental states and how we try to understand them. So by the time you get to functionalism, if you're following the spec in a in linear fashion, you spent a really long time trying to answer the question, what the mind is, you know, what my mental states are. Are they distinct from the brain? Would they exist without the brain? I mean, is there anything more than physical brain states? And functionalism discards that question. Instead of asking what the mind is, it says we need to ask what the mind does. So we actually analyse mental states in terms of their function and not their constitution. So with many things, we define them in terms of their constitution. So if you take a diamond, a diamond is a diamond because of what it what it's actually made of. And it can't be a diamond if it has any other um, constitution. But other things we define in terms of their function. So if you take, for example, a bottle opener, it's defined by the job it does. You know, a bottle opener is a bottle opener because it opens bottles. And it can be made of 
a, a number of different things. You can have you know, glass ones, you can have wooden ones, you can, your teeth can be a bottle opener, but we wouldn't suddenly say, oh no, that's not a bottle opener because it's made of, of X. That's not how we define it. Same with things like you know, a mousetrap. A mousetrap is a mousetrap because of what it does. Now, if we start to look at the mind in that way, then a pain, a hope, a fear, you know, a, a desire to eat something, they're defined in terms of what they do, in terms of a particular input being converted into a particular output. So, for example, if I was to define the term pain, whereas identity theory would say, well, it's a, it's a particular brain state, and in the absence of that brain state, there isn't any pain. And behaviorism would say, well, we're going to analyze it in terms of a particular behavior. Well, functionalism would say, well, look, whatever converts a particular input, let's say stepping on something sharp into a particular output, crying out, moving one's foot, that's, um, that's what a pain is. And how that happens, how that is realized isn't important. And that leads to the other important part of functionalism, which is mental states can be multiply realized. So there's more than one way that a pain can be made real. You know, and, and mostly the way we, we see it is as a biological brain. That's, that's how we're seeing it realized, but that does, it doesn't have to be. So consciousness doesn't have to be made real within a, a biological brain. And that opens up a whole world of, of possibilities. Now, often, often functionalists will be also physicalists, but they don't have to be because they're not, there's no, nothing within the broad definition of functionalism that says what the, the mind has to be constituted in. So, for example, if an alien came down and then suddenly started conversing with you about their home planet and then beat you at chess, then there's a set of particular inputs and outputs that in another system, in a human being, we would attribute as having consciousness. So we would say that person is, is intelligent. Now, if we suddenly opened up that alien skull and there was a brain made of silicon instead of carbon, or there was no brain at all, well, it would be wrong according to functionalism to then say, well, actually, it wasn't conscious, it wasn't intelligent. It didn't have understanding because functionally, it's been doing the job we've asked it to do. It'd be a bit like saying, oh, that can't be a mousetrap because, you know, it's made of paper. If it does the job, it does the job. So that opens up a whole realm of, of possibilities and, and avoids biological chauvinism. So whereas identity theory could avoid human chauvinism by saying a mental state could be realized in, a, in an animal brain, it still required the brain. And then functionalism opens that up and avoids just biological chauvinism completely. Non-biological systems potentially could be conscious, providing they're fulfilling the same function according to how we've defined that mental state. So that's kind of exciting and also very relevant at the minute, <laughs> mm -hmm. which I'm sure will come on to machine functionalism later. That's great. Thanks, Sally. Uh, it's really comprehensive. Loads going on there. Um, Adrian, Mabel, do you, uh, either of you want to come in and just add some things or think of some of the examples where you try and uh, get your students to, to understand what functionalism is? Well, I see it, if I can come in here, as very much um, sort of response, I suppose, to the failures of, of dualism, in a particular building on, in some sense, the work of logical positivism. Uh, logical positivism was very much um, a movement away from ideas as something real in their own right. And there was a movement much more towards language, the linguistic turn, and how sentences had to, in many ways, function to express a sense that identifies a reference. And if they didn't, basically your sentences weren't about anything. And so just to talk about ideas in the head suddenly became very suspect. And in many ways, Gilbert Ryle, uh, in his book, The Concept of Mind, talked about Descartes' ghost in the machine, whereby these ideas were seen to be like ghosts floating around 
in the mind. But when you actually use a sentence to express something definite and identify what you're talking about, in many ways, it would seem to be inadequate. And so there's this movement away from a discussion of ideas to a discussion of something quite definite that language can function to identify. And trying to find that reference that you can actually discuss meaningfully in the mind was, was a bit of a challenge. And the first approach of Gilbert Ryle himself was that of, in many ways, trying to find in ordinary language some sort of behavior that the language can refer to. So rather than referring to an idea, which is very difficult to really pin down what on earth you're talking about, you rather say, for example, pain, let's say, is that particular physical way of behaving. And so the, the in, inadequate idea as a reference becomes replaced by something quite definite, which is the behavior that you're referring to. But there were problems with behaviorism because it became very difficult to specify really the reality of the mental. Normally, we think that the mental guides our behavior, but to simply say that the mental is our behavior just seemed to be very counterintuitive and, and didn't really do justice to, in some sense, the causality of the mental, how the mental guides our behavior rather than just is that behavior. And so another attempt to try to find a reference of our mental talk, our sentences about the mental, was to move away from physical behavior to physical brain states with the rise, therefore, of psychophysical identity theories, whereby basically the language is referring to a brain state. And two main theories were trying to, to make sense of that way of referring, um, where you try and locate the language on a particular brain state. Um, these were tokens, specific instances that happen in your brain, or a type that at least then you could say, well, this pain is not that particular brain in that particular state, but it's a type of uh, brain state that's maybe shared between two different brains. Um, so you could at least talk about the same pain at different people in different brains because they're, they're just sharing in the same type of experience. But again, this became very, very difficult to maintain because in many ways, when you're trying to look at that reference, you've got certain things like the chauvinism that was mentioned earlier by Sally. Why can't you achieve, um, for example, that experience, that mental state on a very different mechanism when then comes down to multiple realizability of Hillary Putnam? Perhaps if we, we saw a, um, an octopus was one of Hillary Putnam's examples, then the octopus might shrink away from the pain or at least seem to have pain, might shrink away from some sort of input and, and try and move away from this object. And the human brain, which is very different, very different physical system. Um, so it's very difficult to say there's a, a same identity between the, the mental state and the brain state because octopuses and humans have very different brains. There still seems to be, in spite of those very different brain states, a, diff a similar mental state, namely this trying to avoidance of pain. And so... The way I see it, at least, is that functionalism came in to that problem. We've accepted from behaviorism and from the psychophysical identity theories that we don't want to refer to ideas, some vague idea in the head, which is very difficult to have a sense that identifies a clear reference. We want something definite to refer to. But finding anything physical that we could identify really clearly proved to be very difficult, whether it was our behavior or whether it was a particular 
brain state. And then, as Sally rightly put it, I think then we move away from trying to find the reference in any particular physical thing, and we try to find the reference rather in a function, uh, a function that can be performed on a range, maybe, of physical brains. But they're all doing the same thing, like this bottle opener is all doing the same thing. And as long as they're all doing the same thing, they're all in the same state, let's say, of opening the bottle, or in this case, the same mental state. Great. That's really helpful, Adrian. Uh, Mabel, anything you want to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add add a couple points based on kind of especially what Adrian just said there, because I think it's quite interesting bringing analytical philosophy into it, looking at the, you know, logical positivist, you know, 1920s to 1930s kind of Vienna Circle-esque movement, because obviously um, on the spec, we've got Hempel being the hard behaviorist with that direct mental state is analytically reducible to uh, physical behaviors. And then we've got the um, different kind of types. So we've got linguistic behaviors, physiological behaviors. Um, But then also, as you said, kind of linking it almost to mind brain type, you do have the neuroscientific behaviors as well. So the behaviors of the brain. But I think it's important to make reference to different types of functionalism. Because you've got the the causal role functionalism of like the can opener compared to the computational or machine functionalism of the input output. And I think when we look at these, it's quite important because the computational or machine functionalism of, say, Putnam, because he's the one who really put that one together, is uh, slightly different from, say, the causal role of, of people like maybe Dennett, where I think when you said about analytical philosophy, Dennett is sometimes referred to as a neo-behaviorist while still maintaining functionalist views because he wants to kind of uh, grapple with this analytical philosophy and this this sense of of language almost that we can talk about with meaning, but equally whilst describing the function of mental states. Whereas Hilary Putnam, you know, one of my favorite quotes in philosophy and what my year 13s love is that Hilary Putnam calls behaviorism and the way they use analytical philosophy, he calls it a mugs game, like literally just calls them out in, in his uh, work, Nature of Mental States. And he does that because he thinks that by reducing the language of behavior, he has a, a quote, which is being A is being B only if it is informative. So in terms of what the Vienna Circle logical positivists wanted to do, have that philosophy with meaning and language, you know, Putnam calls that a mugs game. He's like almost uh, they're trying too hard to give it meaning. They're they're trying too hard to overly reduce one thing to another. And, you know, he actually likens that to the entire 1930s analytical philosophy movement when he calls it a mugs game. He thinks it's a very um, inadequate way of viewing the mind language. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's important to, to kind of understand the two of, of causal role, which fits in with kind of, I know my students get a little bit confused because I always write, draw diagrams. They find behaviorism, epiphenomenalist dualism and functionalism actually very similar because when you draw kind of, you know, M, uh, B1 to B2 and then M1 to M2 and you describe the relationship between those, they find that um, behaviorism, functionalism and epiphenomenalist dualism as being all quite similar in the way that mental states, in inverted commas, kind of uh, interact with brain states. 
So I think when it comes to kind of causal role and causal closure of systems, I think that's quite an interesting thing to look at with this idea of analytical philosophy and behaviorism being very similar to causal role functionalism, but maybe less less so with uh, computational functionalism. That's really helpful, all of you. Loads of things going on there. In fact, just a, a pause from me. So it's taken us a while to do the Philosophy of Mind episodes and lots of students and teachers have been asking us to do them because they find probably the, the metaphysics of mind uh, and all the philosophy of mind material kind of the hardest of the four units because there's so many isms and so many different positions out there and trying to, and just as you've in, indicated, Mabel, trying to work out the difference between them can be quite hard because there's so many across the 20th century into the 21st century, so many philosophers and then neuroscientists and other people who've stuck their oar in trying to trying to work things out. In the second um, half of this episode, we're going to think about the problems. But for three of you, what do you think, I mean, we've touched on this already, all through all three of you, what do you think are the big strengths then of functionalism? What, 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 what's, if, you, if you're a student and want a big takeaway, what's, what are the, what's the big strength of functionalism, do you think? If I can come in, I'd say one of the strengths is that it's almost neutral, uh, as, as, as Sally was saying, as to the nature of the mental. The, the, the key debate seems to be between sort of physicalism, where the mental is really just physical behavior, or at least physical actions, and on the other side, no, 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 the, um, the mental is some sort of spiritual or um, sort of distinctly mental substance, like a soul that can continue on even after the body is dead. And functionalism manages to, in some sense, sidestep this whole problem and says, look, as long as it performs the function, then it functions as the mental. That's all you need to do. It's almost agnostic as to whether the um, the mental is some sort of spiritual substance separate from the body or whether it is a physical um, substance that is just um, doing work. It doesn't need to do that. In many ways, all you've got to do is have some sort of input, like say a sensory input, and you've got to have a behavioral output. And in the middle, you've got a physical function. I think uh, Hilary Putnam gave the example of a Coke machine. Uh, you could put in a dime or, a, or, or let's say you can put in a nickel. And if you put in a nickel into this machine, the machine goes from state one to state two. And state one is basically, it won't give you a Coke because you haven't put enough money in. So it goes from state one to state two, whereby if you put another nickel in, you get the Coke. If you put a dime in, you get the Coke and a nickel back. So it's got these, these almost levels of function before you actually get your Coke out um, of the machine. It either gives you change, it gives you a Coke, or it doesn't give you a Coke, depending upon what goes on inside the machine and the money you put in. But you don't have to really say in many ways what exactly is going on inside the machine. You just have to specify if you put this sort of input in, you get this sort of output out. And the mental is functioning in that way and allows you to pretty much understand quite a lot of the mental while in some sense sidestepping the question of exactly what the mental is and trying to describe, as Sally said, it's its constitution or anything like that. It's sidestepping the problem. I think, is one of its great strengths. I mean, I think there's probably two advantages I can think of that we haven't already mentioned. One is quite specific and one is much more general and broad. Um, whatever theory of mind that you are discussing, you're probably going to have to talk about mental causation, if it exists, if it does exist, in what state. 
And it's been a problem for everybody because if you're a substance dualist, you have this problem of how an immaterial substance can have an effect on a on a material body. Um, so Ryle's ghost in the machine. Identity theory is probably one of the better ones because you've got brain states causing um, physical other, other physical states. Behaviorism kind of it does have a theory of mental causation. I won't go into it too much now because that'll be a separate episode. But generally, people tend to say there is no mental causation in behaviorism. There's no, and there's certainly no distinct mental state causing action, which is problematic. That you don't cry because you are sad in the sense of sadness being a distinct cause separate from the crying, and that that doesn't sit very well. And then functionalism replaces mental causation. There is mental causation because part of the definition of a mental state is its causal role in in a particular output. But because it's done this lovely little sidestep, he doesn't have to say how it happens. You know, it could be it could be an immaterial soul, it could be a brain state. It doesn't matter how, but it does. It's part of the definition that it causes action. So causation's back, <laughs> mental causation's back, um, but we have we don't have to say how it happens, and that's that's kind of cool. The other thing is, I think, it's just putting it in in context. So it's really nice to put the philosophy of mind. I probably should have said this at the start. Um, the philosophy of mind in its wider context. So for years and years, you know, pe- people were dualists because there was this idea of souls and immaterial substances, and you know that was kind of the wider the the wider picture of how culture was. There, Substance dualism is still around, but like like two percent of academic philosophers still still believe it. And then we got really excited about logical positivism, and you know if we can't verify it, we're not going to talk about it. And then we have behaviorism, and that was popping up in psychology as well. You know, so in a wider cultural context, we're we're loving positivism. Then we got really excited about neuroscience because that was you know going you know in leaps and bounds, and we have our identity theory. Then, and I know there's lots of different types of, of functionalism, but machine functionalism is, I think, is the one that's capturing us right now. And, you know, we AI is very, very um, topical at the moment. So this idea of artificial intelligence and should we be attributing consciousness to non-biological systems, you know, if they can not only beat us at chess, but fool us into thinking they're human beings, um, that that's important right now. That's where we are. And I think functionalism, you know, it really sits well with the the wider cultural issues that we're we're thinking about right now. So we should care. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. It's it's important. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Sally. Mabel, any last thoughts from you before we go for a break? Um, I was just gonna say I really love the way that we practically do it in everyday life. One of the ways um, I explain it to students, because one of the biggest issues I found with getting students to conceptually understand the philosophy of mind is the fact that they have to conceptually understand the mind. And that is very difficult. But with functionalism, it's quite easy to teach because if you say, you know, or if you look at at the way uh, that people like Daniel Dennett explain their approach to functionalism, they talk about how it's a third person analysis and that's all it needs to be. And the fact that we do that every day anyway, we analyse people's... um, kind of mental state in terms of functions and again links that uh, adrian made earlier to behaviorism why dennett is sometimes called the neo-behaviorist is because behaviorism does that to a kind of extent but equally the way that it talks about dispositions and uh, different conditions of ver- verification um i think makes it less intuitive to the students than just the idea that it is the pure functional role that matters so i think that's that's a very a much easier thing to teach than, say, um, mind-brain type identity theory, for instance. 
No, I agree. Because if you say um, to a student, well, how, how am I attributing intelligence to you? How am I understanding, uh, so attributing understanding of this particular theory to you? Well, based on a particular input and output, you know, I ask you a question and you give me an answer. That, okay, they understand. That, that's functional. You know, I'm attributing understanding on the basis of that. Great. Thanks, uh, all three of you. That was really helpful explaining functionalism and going through some of the advantages of it. So uh, we'll see in the next part when we're going to think about a range of issues with functionalism and think of lots of juicy examples. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, it's just to remind you to check out all our other episodes. We have many episodes on all aspects of ethics and moral philosophy, epistemology, philosophy of religion, and new for autumn 2023, philosophy of mind. We hope we'll be covering other topics soon too, such as stretch topics and philosophers not on the specification. So we've introduced the idea of functionalism and we've thought about some advantages of it. We're now going to think about a whole range of issues that are mentioned on the spec and some that aren't mentioned on the spec, but which we think you need to know about. So, Adrian, do you want to start us off by thinking about inverted qualia, please? What the hell are qualia? I think qualia are the the experience, almost the phenomenal experience of the mental state itself, which is well, something we've really ignored when discussing functionalism, because rather than talking about um, what Sally rightly called the constitution of it, we've rather talked about the function. And in many ways, you can criticize functionalism, I think, by, by almost drawing upon what could be called a modus tollens argument. Because if functionalism is true, it seems mental states can be understood as functional states. So that's the first sort of move. And then you say, but you can say that actually some mental states, in particular phenomenal experiences, the experiences, let's say, of a particular color, are qualia. They've got this, this experience which is not functional. It's something that we sort of have a, a likeness. It's, it's yellow. It's got a particular texture or a particular feel to it. And that cannot itself be understood functionally. And then through a modus tollens argument, you say, well, if functionalism says that mental states have to be understood simply functionally. And there are mental states such as qualia, which are this sort of experience that cannot be understood purely functionally, but simply in terms of the characteristic of the experience itself, then it seems that functionalism must itself be wrong. And this argument of trying to show, therefore, that functionalism is wrong was developed in the inverted qualia argument. And the inverted qualia argument is a bit like the argument, is the blue that I experience really blue? But it does it in, in a, quite an interesting way. It sort of inverts the spectrum of light that we experience. And so what we experience, let's say, as the lower wavelengths of light suddenly get transferred to the higher wavelengths of light. The name that we the, the name that we use, let's say, could be identical. I could use the word red, for example, um, for all of those um, wavelengths of light, and blue for another wavelength of light. But what's different in this case is that I experience each of them differently. Let's say my red is your blue, your blue is my red. But that doesn't matter. That's just the experience of it. Functionally, it still seems to be that I can communicate with you. Because although the red I'm experiencing is your blue, 
The way I use language means that functionally there's no difference at all. I, I can talk about red in exactly the same way as you talk about red, but the, the strange thing is I'm actually experiencing it as blue, let's say, not as red. And this leads in many ways then to a difference between the mental state of how I experience the color and the functional state of how I use the word about that color. And in many ways then, it seems to be a problem for functionalism because by flipping the qualia, all of the wavelengths of the bottom of light suddenly became at the top of light. And yet the words that I use for my experiences of light remain pretty much the same as anybody else's in the way I function, but the experience itself is very different. I think some people have, have argued, well, okay, conceptually it's possible to flip all of the wavelengths of light and um, avoid, avoid sort of, you know, saying that the function is identical to the experience that you've got. But some people who want to defend the neuroscientific program say, well, actually, you know, when you actually get to the detail just a thought experiment of what is conceptually possible might not be practically possible. And so when you actually look at the, the light that we experience, it tends to be from about 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers in wavelength. And we don't see many of the other um, wavelengths of light just within that narrow band. And the, the light that we see, the red, for example, is at 700, the purple is at 400. When you look at it, what's going on, actually, as far as the mechanisms of perception goes, we seem to have three kinds of photoreceptors, the blue, the green, and the red. And when you look at the mechanism, you might say, okay, theoretically, I might be able to swap all of the colors around and, you know, what you see and what you use the word for red, you experience, let's say, as blue, whereas I experience it as red. Theoretically, it might be possible to swap it all around. But when you actually look at the mechanisms of perception itself, our three photoreceptors, um, and how in many ways the green and the red are closer together in the band of light than the blue, um, it means that we've got greater precision in our sight at the, the, the level of green and red objects whereas our ability to distinguish colors is less good at the level of the blue. And you might think, okay, yes, at the level of a thought experiment, a simple thought experiment, it might be conceptually possible just to swap all of our colors around and say that, you know, my blue is your red and your red is my blue. But when you actually look maybe at the mechanism that we actually use to understand colors, maybe... Um, it's not so possible. And actually, maybe functionalism and indeed a greater attention to our mental powers could actually be a way of refuting a simple appeal to this difference of qualia and difference of function. Maybe what we experience is actually more closely tied to the functioning of our eyes than a simple swapping around thought experiment really does justice to. That's great. Thanks, Adrian. And then there's on the spec, uh, there's a kind of continuation thinking about uh, qualia and we get uh, not just an inverted qualia uh, problem, but also a thought that there's might be no qualia. And who wants to take that on for us? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that and I'll talk about um, what's on the spec as Ned Block's China brain argument. And basically, in, in essence, Ned Block has a massive issue with this kind of idea that functionalism has with input output. And so he wants to challenge 
what he calls the prima facie embarrassment of functionalism uh, by talking about how just because there's uh, an identical functional state, it does not mean that there is an identical mental state, qualia or brain state to that. So he's talking about the China brain. What he's essentially doing is he is turning the entire country of China into a model brain. The way he's doing this uh, in his thought experiment is by taking over government for uh, a period of time and making every citizen line up. So they're essentially mirroring a brain and mirroring neurons. The reason he chose China is because there are billions of people in China. There are billions of neurons. So that's kind of uh, the purpose of why it is China brain. Um, And he is going to give them all walkie talkies get them to communicate the same way that our neuropathways do, the same way that our synapses do. He wants to basically replicate a brain, the function of a brain, the the function of everything with the country of China. And he basically poses or, or finds the obvious conclusion that if you lined up everyone in China like they were neurons and, and you you did this this uh, the function of a brain exactly as a brain functions, no one according to Ned Block, would say that China is conscious. He says it's obvious that that China is not conscious, even if you had the exact same function of a brain with China. So that's that's his main argument, talking about functional states not equaling brain states, challenging the idea of input and output, because obviously the input would be the same as it is with the brain, but there would be no conscious experience. And by conscious experience here, I'm talking about qualia, So qualia being also sometimes referred to as phenomenal properties of mental states. That was a three marker on the exam last year, which tripped up quite a few people because they're so used to word qualia. They've kind of forgotten that it's called uh, phenomenal mental states. So it's important just to know both the terms for for your mental states. So he's basically saying there's no qualia in China. So there's no um, functional state producing qualia. What we have there is a response from Daniel Dennett is he basically completely disagrees with Ned Block. He says, absolutely, China would be conscious in this case. He says, as neurons aren't the only things uh, or the only material that can produce mental states, it is perfectly feasible that if every single person in China was functioning as a brain, they would have this almost shared collective consciousness or this whole consciousness. Um, So he makes a direct argument that actually, if Ned Block could perfectly mirror the brain, then it would be conscious. So he's got that that response to Ned Block there. Okay, thanks, Mabel and Adrian. So just to pause there, everyone. There's thank you for the reminder, Mabel. So qualia mean phenomenal mental properties or phenomenal mental states. Sorry, I should say. Uh, and so we've got this whole idea of functionism, which, as we explained in the in the first part, it's all about the function. It's all about what the mental state does, right? Inputs, outputs, however we then further classify it. But with phenomenal mental states, what you've got is the what is it likeness to see red or to smell coffee or to feel a certain texture. And that sort of, that phenomenal mental state, that kind of, that feel, um, that we experience all the time in our conscious lives just isn't captured at all by functions. It's not designed to capture it. And so people are trying to make um, these examples of inverted qualia or no qualia kind of show up what functionalism is and say, actually, functionalism 
isn't capturing something that we typically think of as being absolutely essential to our mental lives. So something's gone wrong. So that's basically what's going on with these these two examples. And so you're getting kind of um, the examples and the responses, which basically saying you haven't captured something and people saying, no, no, we have, or perhaps the the brain right, is a bit more complicated than you think. And you can't just come up with a simple hypothetical example, because as Adrian indicated with the colors, the neuroscience is a little bit more complicated. You're going to have to work a little bit, a little bit harder. So there's another really interesting example, classic example and argument on the specification, uh, which is Frank Jackson's knowledge or Mary argument. Uh, Sally, I think you were going to explain this one for us, weren't you? Yeah, sure. So this takes a slightly different approach to criticising functionalism. So the examples that Adrian and, and Mabel both used were showing that functional duplicates might not be mental duplicates. So um, you know, you, if functionalism is correct functionally identical systems ought to have the same mental states. And in both cases, you know, that was shown not to be the case or argued not to be the case. So this is a different one. This one's about knowledge. And it's actually a slightly different use of Frank Jackson's knowledge slash Mary argument, which is um, on the specification has already come up under property dualism as an argument for property dualism. And in this case, it's being used as an argument against physicalism. So we have to just run through the the example to make it work anyway um, and I know that will be it'll be in the property dealers episode but um, Frank Jackson proposes this thought experiment where you've got this amazing neuroscientist called Mary um, and Mary has never experienced colour so you know you have to run with it <laughs> um, she's been born into a, a black and white room her skin her clothes are black and white the books she's used to study are black and white her tv monitor is is black and white and she has learned everything there is to know about colour, every physical fact, sorry, every physical fact there is to know about colour. So she knows about the way the retina works. She knows about light frequencies. She's, you know, she's a genius. There's no physical fact about colour perception that she doesn't know. Now, when she leaves the room, she actually experiences a, a ripe tomato for the first time. The Jack Jackson's argument is that she gains new knowledge. She gains new knowledge because she's like, oh, that's what it's like. That's the qualia of, uh, of a ripe um, tomato. That's what red feels like, that phenomenological quality. Um, and that is used as an argument against physicalism to say that not all facts are physical facts, because if, the, if they were, she'd have known what qualia was like because she had everything there was to know about the physical world. And yet there was something more. So not all facts and not all knowledge is, is physical. Now, we can use that also against functionalism because Mary also knows all functional facts. So she knows when presented, for example, with a ripe tomato, that she would, you know, that's your the input, you know, here is a ripe tomato, what colour is it? And she would respond, output, it is red. She knows all functional facts about how we would behave around colour, what inputs would lead to what outputs. You know, there's no fact that she doesn't know. So if functionalism was true, she knows everything there is to know about mental states, because all there is to know about mental states are functional facts what various inputs um, you know, and various outputs work to, you know, to, to define that a particular mental state has happened. And yet when she's released from the room and she's present, presented with that ripe tomato, she gains something new. That is what it's like. That's the qualia. You know, that, you know, that's what it's like to experience red. Now, if functionalism was correct, she would have already known that because she had all functional facts already. She knew everything in terms of functionality about you know about how we behave with in, in terms of when we're presented with the ripe tomatoes 
But because she gained something new, she gained that qualia that has been this enemy of functionalism and it just can't deal with it, then this shows that functionalism has to fail because we cannot capture mental states in functional terms. If we did, she'd have known what it was like. Great. Thanks, Sally. Do we want to mention zombies at this point as well? Yeah, we can bring up zombies. Apparently, Daniel Dennett is uh, my favourite philosopher because I also have his critique to that as well. Um, One of the other issues building on this is philosophical zombies used as a critique to functionalism. So philosophical zombies is also on the spec as as an argument for property dualism as well. So both knowledge argument uh, slash Mary's room argument and philosophical zombies are arguments for property dualism, but they are also given as critiques to functionalism. And this particular uh, idea of philosophical zombies, again, will be spoken about in the property dualism episode, but it is a physical duplicate of um, essentially you, I, a person. It's just an exact physical duplicate, including in the functions and responses, but that lacks qualia. So a philosophical zombie, for instance, when something is dropped on their foot, uh, they would still say, ow. You know, if they cut themselves, they would still hold the cut. It's an identical functional duplicate. However, there is no qualia. So basically, the the idea of um, philosophical zombies existing uh, challenges functionalism because it says you can have a functional duplicate, i.e. a a physical duplicate that functions all the same way as a person, uh, but without any mental state or qualia. So you've got this idea of... um, Physicalism being incomplete in the same way that physicalism has been seen to be incomplete with uh, from arguments from Ned Block and from Frank Jackson. Um, this philosophical zombies argument mirrors these. Great. And and where are the three of you at the moment with all of these examples? Hey, because we got we got some more discussions to have. But where are you feeling at the moment with functionism? Do you think it's it's working well? It can defend itself from these different examples and arguments or is it struggling a bit i think it's struggling i mean i think if you take something like inverted qualia that adrian illustrated the the argument against functionalism you know is is that two people could be presented with a ripe tomato similar identical input and they could both have the output it is red and yet the qualia they're experiencing is is very different you know, so, you know, the quality that you might be experiencing, for example, is what I experience when I experience fresh grass. Um, so you have, the, again, functional ident- um, functional duplicates. They're identical in functional terms, but not identical in mental terms. And as functionalism only defines mental terms um, in terms of functions, then that, that means it fails. Now, they can try to answer. They do try. And they would say mm, there would be differences. You know, because when you're asked to describe the tomato and you're asked if it's a warm colour, then you're going to say something different. Because if you're experiencing this particular choir, you wouldn't say it, um, you know, and, and is the sea, you know, is it a cold kind of, you know, and, but it, it just begs the question, I think. Um, so the functionalist really struggles, I think, to say, no, there'd definitely be differences. There'd be functional differences if the mental states were different, because it might not be. Okay? Um, so I, I think without begging the question, I think they really do struggle. I'd say, yeah, I'd say the same, um, but sometimes you find that there's this emphasis on qualia and these things, maybe they're generated by 
in many ways, a failure to really involve itself too much in the functioning of the brain and the neuroscience, and it allows for these uh, thought experiments to arise. But as I tried to suggest with the inverted spectrum, maybe if, if you actually look more at the, the actual mechanisms, um, which then you'd be sort of moving away from functionalism, maybe more to neuroscience, if you looked at some of the functional ways in which um, we actually perceive colors, then maybe some of these um, thought experiments wouldn't be so powerful because although they could be conceptually possible, maybe they just wouldn't be practically possible. And, um, and so they would lose some of their power. But then I think you'd in many ways, I take it, have to move away from a simply functional account and actually take the, the neuroscience a bit more um, seriously as far as the detail and the mechanisms go. Great. Uh, so we're going to throw a few more examples at you. So we said we we're going to do Chinese Room, and we're going to talk about Alan Turing and AI. So, Adrian, do you want to start us off by thinking about the Chinese Room, please? Yeah, the Chinese Room is in many ways a very powerful um, thought experiment that John Searle came up with. Um, and it's something that sort of leads very powerfully to the conclusion that functionalism is just not good enough. And what he does is he basically asks you to imaginatively identify with in many ways, um, a program, a, a function that has this input and this output, a bit like the, um, the Coke machine that I talked about earlier where you put in the dime or you put in the nickel and then you get out a Coke. But in Searle's example, it's rather that you put in a Chinese claim and then the output is an appropriate Chinese claim. It's basically the, the, the answer that you'd expect a competent Chinese speaker to give. So you've got the input, you've got the output, and somehow it's functionally perfect in between. But then Searle basically takes you into that in-between space of function and, uh, and asks you to imagine that in many ways you're like a computer. And so you put in, let's say, a slip of paper with a Chinese phrase on, um, and then you're inside this box, you receive this slip of paper, and then there's um, a, a command book that says, if this comes along, then you do that. Uh, and so you don't understand anything about the Chinese symbols on the paper. But nonetheless, you can recognize the different shapes. And based on those shapes, you can then say, if I get these specific shapes, I have to give back these specific shapes. And because this rule book is a really good one, you can actually give the right answer to every single claim that's given to you. So um, let's say the Chinese person says hello, and you respond in exactly the right way. But the only trouble is, inside this room, the Chinese room, you have no understanding of what you're doing, apart from taking a certain input that you can't even read because it's all Chinese symbols, and giving a certain output, according to this rule book, of um, what's appropriate and the Chinese person outside the room says, wow, this, this person functions perfectly. They speak Chinese. Whereas, in fact, the person inside the room hasn't got a clue. They've just got certain shapes, a rule book, and they give out the appropriate shapes based on the rule book. In any case, this seems, therefore, to challenge functionalism because surely, and it's, it's sort of a slightly different point to the previous one, let's say the inverted spectrum, which was about the qualia, which is about the phenomenal experience of, of the mental. This one's more about the intentional experience of the mental. It's being about something, like propositional attitudes. You actually know what you're talking about. 
And in this case, the man inside the Chinese room doesn't know what he's talking about. He's completely at a loss. All he does is follow rules. Well, again, we had Daniel Dennett coming back and saying, well, I'm not sure this um, thought experiment works because the man inside the Chinese room is actually more like a cog in the machine rather than the whole. And what you've got to do is turn away the focus from the specific cog and look at the system to which the man is part. And so if you can see the input and then the man and then the rule book and then the, um, the output, if you could see it as a whole, then actually maybe then there would be conscious understanding of what's going on. It's just that little cog in the conscious understanding mechanism doesn't really get it. But if you saw the bigger picture, then that would work. But again, John Searle comes back at Dennett and says, no, even that move uh, is not really adequate because let's just make it simple. Um, let's almost internalize the whole Chinese room into the man and just say, okay, he now he's memorized the rule book. Um, and he, let's say, takes the input and the output himself and, and everything is internal to the person. And now you can't say, well, the man's just a cog in the system. And he's not the system as a whole, because now the whole system is included in that man. And so again, he seems to adequately respond. But then again, Dennett can respond, well, you, you're just talking about rule books and things like that. Mental life is about identifying things. And so you've actually got to engage with the real world. If this thought experiment is going to work, you've got to sort of semantically identify something. And then you'll be in the position of understanding things rather than just talking about things in this sort of misunderstanding way. Um, so you've got to, in some sense, reach out and, and, and get an object. But again, John Searle comes back at Dennett and says, well, okay, let's move out of the Chinese room and even of my own consciousness. Let's say I'm now in a robot. The robot, let's say, actually locks onto an object absolutely accurately based upon the Chinese conversation and behaves in the real world as the proper Chinese person does. But even then, um, Searle's claim is that you wouldn't understand what you're doing. Even if you lock onto the objects in the world and you're actually identifying the right objects in a way, you're not really identifying them because again, all you're doing is following this rule book. All you're doing is moving levers in the robot to engage with the world, but you're not properly understanding the world. You're not identifying things because you don't really understand any of the operations. You're just following a rule book. Well, I find all of this really, really powerful, and um, it seems compelling. But a problem, I think, with Searle's argument is that he's really just dealing with strong artificial intelligence. And strong artificial intelligence sort of sees artificial intelligence in terms of a deterministic automaton. Um, there's linear processing. It's like if you get this input, then you give that output. And all of it's very, very procedural and very, very systematic. The sort of thing that you could get, for example, in a rule book that um, Searle's was looking up and just following the rules. But if you move to more modern forms of artificial intelligence, the linear processing, which is deterministic, is now being replaced by parallel processing, which is probabilistic. And it's not clear, therefore, that under this sort of way of thinking, that you could just put I don't know, a soul into a Chinese room and look up a rule and then come out with some output given the input. It seems like modern artificial intelligence is so complex with parallel processing and probabilistic reasoning that Searle's 
Chinese room thought experiment is maybe a little bit out of date. And indeed, this sort of artificial intelligence is becoming more and more common. For example, there was the computer system AlphaZero, a computer that beat a human in the game Go. It's a board game where you've got to occupy territory. And it used uh, probabilistic reasoning and parallel processing to do this. And it uh, therefore achieved quite a lot of what we might call mental power. And it seems though, at least in those cases, Searle's thought experiment wouldn't work because the computers have now become so complex that you can't just say there's an algorithm, a function where you just say, if this input, then you give that output, which a human maybe could emulate. Nowadays, I don't know what you'd do, but there's just too much complexity going on for any human to inhabit that space as Searle did for the traditional strong artificial intelligence. Uh, that's great. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, really interesting stuff with Searle and the and Chinese Room and, and the discussion between Searle and, and Dennett. Sally, do you want to put this in context in the kind of broad kind of 20th century and discussions around philosophy of mind and machine learning for us, please? Sure, sure. So Searle was actually responding directly to something called the, the Turing test. So um, this was proposed by Alan Turing in a paper called The, um, the Imitation Game, also a film. Please go and educate yourself, everybody, on Alan Turing and his his role in history. Um, however, we're just concerned with his role as the father of um, computer science. So just to kind of just very quickly talk about machine functionalism. Machine functionalism is a branch of functionalism that kind of makes an analogy between um, the hardware of a computer system and um, and the brain. So if you think about the hardware of a computer system, it's the physicality. It's like your glass and metal um, desktop. And then within that runs the software, which is the program. Now, if you make the analogy with our, our consciousness, we have our hardware it happens to be our physical brain and our mental states. They're the, the software, if you like. You know, they're doing a particular job, um, you know, letting us feel consciousness, pains, hopes, understanding, etc. Now, in machine functionalism, the hardware is not important as long as the program's running. So if you came in and you know, your, your desktop had been replaced with something that was made of cheese, but you could still run your programs and you could still you know, do your word processing, it's fine. Still, you know, the hardware is not important. So the point is that with machine functionalism, our, as long as those mental states are performing the function, it doesn't matter. We've said this already. It's multiply realizable. It doesn't matter where it's happening. It doesn't have to be a biological brain which opens the door for, for artificial intelligence. So let's remember that functionalism defines mental states purely in, fun, in terms of its functional role. And therefore, identical functions should equal identical mental states. So Turing proposed this test, but this was in the early 1950s, I believe. And computer, at this point, computers still filled rooms. You know, we had we, we were at the very early age of, of computer technology, but Turing saw where we were going with this. He, he knew. And he said, imagine, imagine this scenario. So you have an interrogator, and this interrogator is on one side of a screen. On the other side, you have a human being, and you have a machine, a computer. Now, the interrogator types in questions, and then they get two sets of typed responses back. Now, if from those typed responses, they cannot distinguish which is the human being and which is the, the machine, then you either have to say they're both conscious or neither are because you can't tell the difference between them functionally. And if you go back to 
functionalism. That's the only way we're defining mental states in terms of functional role. Now, you know, like when Turing wrote his paper, we were miles off, but we've spent billions of pounds trying to pass the Turing test. You just go away and Google Turing test. And you'll see, you know, and, and we've, we've done it. You know, you, you can see now that, you know, the advances in AI, you know, something as simple as a chatbot. You know, we, we can see that we've, we've got to the point where we machine output is indistinguishable from human output. Now, according to Turing, we should be then calling these systems conscious. They have the same mental states. Now, Searle was responding to that by saying that actually you could pass the Turing test without essential features of mental states. So the Chinese room scenario with this you know, poor man in the room with his little basket of symbols and his manual, um, you know, and you've got the Chinese questions coming in, the Chinese answers going out, is a functional duplicate of a, China, a native Chinese speaker. But this guy has the syntax, he knows how to follow the rules, but he doesn't have the semantics, he doesn't have the understanding. So in this case, this Chinese room would pass the Turing test. Now, he's indistinguishable from a native Chinese speaker. So you'd have to say they both understand Chinese, either neither understand Chinese or both understand Chinese. But that's clearly wrong. The man doesn't understand Chinese. So if you feed them back to functionalism, this means functionalism is wrong because the Turing test is a natural consequence of functionalism. But you can pass the Turing test without understanding, without essential features of consciousness. Therefore, functionalism is wrong. And this leads into something that, you know, Searle found he just had a problem with artificial intelligence in general and he said actually we're, we're making a mistake here we're mistaking simulation and duplication so in the same paper that I think Adrian was, was referring to minds brains and, and programs where he's kind of took, looking at all these responses to the to the um, Chinese room he says look don't mistake the simulation of consciousness from the duplication of consciousness when we simulate something it's not real <laughs> you know which fooling if I was to simulate um if I was to simulate a human being I'd make a hologram of them and I'd fool people, but there's no, there's nothing real there. If I was to duplicate them, then I'd clone them and I'd make a new one. Now, if you want to duplicate consciousness, says Searle, that's going to happen in a biological system because consciousness is biological. And by doing that, he places the emphasis back on the hardware. So machine function is like, yeah, the hardware can be anything. It doesn't matter. And then Searle is saying it does matter because just like digestion, it's a biological feature and functionalism's dismissal of the hardware and this kind of liberal attribution of mind and this multiple realizability where you're giving you know, consciousness to any system that shows a particular um, function, that's really just wrong. So for Searle, artificial intelligence is an oxymoron because if it's artificial, it's not intelligence, it's a simulation. But if it's intelligent, there's nothing artificial about it. And I think that's something that you know, is actually very, very important right now in the age of, of AI that we're currently living in. Was he right? Was he right to say that artificial intelligence is an oxymoron? Are we simply just simulating something that's only ever going to be biological? In which case, biological chauvinism isn't so chauvinistic. That's great. Thanks very much, Sally. Mabel, Adrian, any thoughts from you on that? When it comes to this, uh, this kind of liberalism, you know, that's, that's one of the key points that's mentioned on uh, specification reading as well, the kind of over, that's something that functionists actually say about behaviorism as well. So it's the, the irony of them kind of using this liberalism for behaviorism and then falling into that trap themselves. But also to bring in kind of new technology, talking about new advancements with AI, there's also uh, been developed a brain, so a, a lab um, and again, please look into the students, but this lab has grown a brain which has 
so a biological essentially duplicate of a brain that learns quicker than AI models. It, it learned to play chess quicker than the, the current AI models we have. So you've got that idea of would that be a kind of liberalism to uh, attribute consciousness to this to this brain? Would a brain outside of the system, because functionalism as well, one of the things that they critique about mind-brain type identity theory, which is another specification issue, uh, is the fact that mind-brain type identity theory only talks about brain states. So they say that's, you know, limiting because you've got to talk about the function of a whole system. And I think actually when you think about, you know, just a, a brain independently of that system, would it be, you know, a functionalist claim to claim that that brain on its own has consciousness, has mental states, or uh, because it learns as AI does, or would it, you know, not being within a functional system, would that AI mimicking consciousness no longer be valid? So it's the case of would functionalists count this independent brain as uh, as essentially conscious or not. Great, thank you. Adrian, any thoughts from you? Yeah, it seems a lot um, turns around on, on what David Chalmers um, identified as the sort of the, the easy problem of consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness. He makes that claim in his 1994 article, Science of Consciousness, then part of his Conscious Mind book. And the easy problem of consciousness it seems to be that we can give a functional analysis of consciousness, and that's certainly possible, and that seems to be the great strength of functionalism. Um, but the hard problem of consciousness is, is can this analysis of consciousness in terms of function give an adequate account of qualia, phenomenal experiences, and also of propositional attitudes or descriptive claims, intentional experiences, which sort of have a semantic reference, they're about something. And even then, moving into other thought experiments that you could move into, such as the twin earth thought experiment of Hilary Putnam of water. I mean, if you're just functional, I take it, then you don't really care whether water picks out H2O or not. But he comes out again with another thought experiment, such as, well, in twin earth, the functional word water picks out H2O here, but in Twin Earth it picks out XYZ, a, 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 something that's different, but it's functionally identical. And through all these sorts of thought experiments, they're always trying to pull apart this, um, this, this attempt to just say, look, um, the mental is just functional. But it seems like maybe the mental is more than functional. It also involves um, brain states. It also involves the semantic reference, whether we're talking about H2O or XYZ, this rigid designator of Saul Kripke that we pick out. Can we just say everything is functional? And I'm inclined to think, well, we probably can't. Um, we're going to have to have a, comp a more complex language to make sense of the mental than just a functional analysis. But that being said, that functional analysis is still extremely powerful and it's been very helpful. That's great. Thank you. Any last thoughts from you, Sunny? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's just, I think it's really nice with the philosophy of mind that it is so current. Sometimes philosophy can seem, you know, a little bit abstract when we, you know, no offence to Gettier examples, but sometimes it's quite hard to see, you know, why do we, you know, why, how does this apply to my life? But you think about the philosophy of mind, it's like literally what we are, what constitutes us. And I think, functionalism and the way this is moving now um, is really forcing us to have a look at our, our not only our own consciousness but whether it's right or wrong to be attributing it to other systems and I think you know soon 
this is going to spill into obviously ethical issues. Well, it already has in terms of the ethics of AI. So this will have an impact on on that, you know, machine rights, etc. So I think it's, you know, although things like inverted qualia may seem like a little, a little abstract, this this really matters, you know, and I, I think that's probably what I would leave with. Okay, that's great. Uh, that sounds like a, a good place to end things for this episode. Uh, so we should thank uh, all our guests for being with us. So Mabel, thanks for coming on again. Thank you very much for having me. And Sally, thanks to you. Oh, thank you. Always a pleasure. And Adrian, thanks for your first appearance on uh, Philosophy Gets Schooled. Thanks very much. Loved it. And thank you to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode on functionalism. Uh, Please check out our other episodes. And all being well, you'll be listening to us very soon. (laughs) 